Well, hello you. This is Laura Camacho, the communication coach at Mixonian Institute, and welcome to the Speak Up podcast. This is episode 103, and today's topic is Ralph Lauren and emotional intelligence. So in in case you didn't know, Ralph Lauren Company recently celebrated its 50-year anniversary, so that's quite an accomplishment to be in business. It's a publicly traded company. And there's a new book out about Ralph Lauren and how he built the company. And it's called Ralph Lauren in His Own Fashion by Alan Flusser. That's F-L-U-S-S-E-R. It's a beautiful book. I'm so enjoying it. And I was, just last week, I taught a class on emotional intelligence that went exceptionally well. And then I'm reading the, you know, just reading the first couple of chapters of this book about Ralph Lauren and the author emphasizes so much the emotional intelligence in fact he calls it emotional no, fashion emotional intelligence or an emotional fashion intelligence because Ralph Lauren was not really a clothes designer he was a stylist but he really created this whole fantasy world for us consumers we, you know he invited us to go along with that or to join him in this in this world that he created. So I wanted to kind of give you some insight into how he used emotional intelligence to help you see how you can use it. Because emotional intelligence is one of these, it seems to be a very vague concept. Now the official definition of emotional intelligence is the ability to manage your own emotions and the emotions of people around you. So there's the, the aspect of managing yourself and your own emotions, and there's the aspect of being aware of and doing what you can to manage the emotions of the people you work with or that you're your family. So the thing about Ralph Lauren, you know, his first of all, he started life off as Ralph Lipschitz, which is a terrible last name. So it, he didn't just change it to start his business. He changed it because he and his he had two older brothers and an older sister, and they just were sick of being made fun of. They were his parents were immigrants from Eastern Europe, so they changed it to Lauren to keep the same initial, but to get something like super easy to pronounce, which is like the opposite of Mixonian and Mixonian Institute. But that's another story. <laughs> So Ralph Lauren, uh, he was, you know, born on the wrong side of the tracks in this pretty uh, orthodox or strong Jewish family. Uh, And his father was an artist, so a painter. So he definitely must have inherited some of that visual intelligence from his father. And he actually did not go to college, did not go to design school. He might have gone to taken some classes, but he started off selling gloves and then he switched to selling ties and then he switched to making ties. But he was always driven by this desire to be or to be a part of this a world that was like the upper class, like the upper class in America, the upper class in Britain. But not the real upper class, but the way he imagined it to be. Like a new and improved version where everybody's beautiful and tastefully dressed. And they look great and they love their families and everybody gets along. It was just this tasteful world that he ended up creating starting with his ties. 
So to begin with, his whole company is based on this emotion of wanting to fit in, to look classy, to elevate your look, to be more confident in how you're dressed. In fact, even in high school, he would take his brother's hand-me-downs and style them. He was already setting, uh, working on his personal brand. I mean, nobody called it that at the time, but he was definitely dressing differently. He used clothes as a way to set himself apart uh, from the other people at his high school. And in the summers, he was working at this camp where there were some upper crusty type people and they had a team that they were competing these different games. And he created this uniform for his team that consisted of a light blue Oxford shirt and white Bermuda shorts. Clothes were was always very important to him, but it wasn't just trying to look different or cr- trying to make a protest or trying to make a just a random statement. No, it was trying to elevate his look, to, to look like a leader, um, a upper class, the noblesse oblige kind of look. So that's really what started. So he was really, he really had a good start by naming his company Polo. And in fact, his, he had an early partner with his Thai business and then they decided not to continue working together and the, and his partner just let him have the name Polo. And um, of course, Ralph Lauren hadn't, you know, come up with that name, but he didn't take him to court or anything about that. And he definitely lost the chance to have a big part of the Ralph Lauren history. So we'll take the first takeaway is that we underestimate the emotional aspect of products and services. And and in fact, think about all the talk about corporate culture. And isn't culture at the end of the day really about how people feel about coming to work? Think about that. And think about how people feel when they come to work with you. And of course, that's not 100% in your control, but you do have a lot to do with that by the the emotions that you model, by the way the place looks, by the way the people talk to each other, the way they are assessed, the way they're encouraged. So all of that is part of emotional intelligence. It's part of branding. It's part of being a smart leader, thinking about how people feel. All right, so, so that's number one. That's my number one takeaway is that emotional intelligence can be a brand builder. It can certainly be a career maker. Uh, as this is all assuming that your competence is already taken care of. But then the next thing is, how do people feel about working with you? And then another rather obvious takeaway is the, the impact of clothes. And a lot of you may have seen the video I put out with a little story about this radio personality. Paul Harvey was his name. The Paul Harvey Show. And he ended his show, his word, his last words would be, good day. And so Paul Harvey was in business 60 years, top rated show, most profitable radio show. And of course, he started, you know, basically when radio started way long time ago when men wore suits and ties to work every day, almost no matter what. But as standards changed and people began to dress more business casual, he decided to ditch the tie. And anyway, he's on the radio, right? So nobody, he's seeing him. But when he wasn't wearing his suit and tie, but just business casual, you know, a shirt with a collar, maybe a blazer, maybe not, 
his ratings actually went down on the Paul Harvey show. And it wasn't because other people were seeing that. It was the it was his self-perception. He somehow did not feel like he was at his the top of his game. So clothes, even today, have the ability to make a statement. And actually last Friday I was at a lunch talking to this architect and we were we were talking about this very same story and he said if you're the worst dressed person in the group it doesn't matter no you know nobody really cares but if you're the best dressed person people think they assume you're in charge so you do have control there i know that we live in an uber casual era which in a way makes it easy to up level your dress because the, you know, the people are dressing so informally. And there's no hard and fast rule because I think it would be really inappropriate to wear a three-piece suit or pantyhose and heels and a suit to a company that is obviously business casual, but you can pay attention to little details, maybe use real jewelry, high-quality shoes, high-quality handbag if you're a man, you know, uh, uh, pay attention to your to the tie, to the belt. And, and I personally mix high-low. I have some really good pieces, and I have a lot of Goodwill pieces. I love shopping at Goodwill or thrift shops. I have a lot of cashmere sweaters from Goodwill and thrift shops. Sometimes I get them monogrammed. But I can take an outfit that's not too expensive or not too new and elevate it with some nice gold jewelry. So think about your the way you dress, the way you present yourself to the world affects the way you feel about yourself and then other people are going to follow that example. So that's what Ralph Lauren started doing and I'm not saying that we need to wear Ralph Lauren. In fact, I own very little of Ralph Lauren. In fact, Probably most of what I do own, I bought secondhand, but that also is a testament to the, to the value of classics in clothing. So the points are, the way people feel is a competitive advantage. Number two, the way you dress can be a competitive advantage. And my third point is this, that uh, when you go out and be creative and come up with creative solutions, uh, it's not an easy sell. I mean, even Ralph Lauren, Ralph Lauren of all people, when he was out selling his ties. So he, apparently for many years, I would say like 20 years, ending probably in the late 60s, like apparently ties were like the same width, made of four different patterns. Either it was blue dots on a red background or vice versa or the size of the dot might vary from the size of a pencil eraser or a size of a penny. But apparently there was very little variation in ties. And Ralph Lauren, he would go to these upholstery shops where they sold, you know, silks for curtains and uh, tapestry fabrics. And he would buy remnants or buy fabric there and make his ties out of those fabrics. So it was completely different. And he, and he also made the tie really wide. Apparently this, if you, if you, you may remember the early seventies men's lapels were very wide and the tie was very wide, but people weren't, I mean, the store buyers perceived him as super risky. 
it was not like, oh, that's a beautiful tie. Let me have, you know, one in every color. He, he really had to be persuasive. He had to be enthusiastic. He had to uh, stick to his guns. In fact, at one point, Bloomingdale's offered to buy part of this initial collection that he had created. They wanted to like cherry pick. And he said that that wouldn't work, that people wouldn't get the the look that it wouldn't be a complete message if they only had some of the ties. Neiman Marcus, by the way, was his first big account. But since it's not, at it, it, that time, did not have a uh, store in New York. He said he you know, wasn't, cons- you, you weren't considered successful until you were at a store in New York. And he ended up, his first store in New York is a store that no longer exists. But eventually, Bloomingdale's became a really good client of his. But the point is that even if you're a genius, you know, we'll say Ralph Lauren is this visual genius, that when you propose something different or unexpected, even though you have this background of being consistent, good quality work, you're going to have to work to convince people because the risk is perceived as high. So you have to think of ways you can mitigate that risk for people. And I think just being aware uh, is is one way uh, to do that. And that's really the topic for another podcast. But just any kind of creative change is perceived by the successful as risky. I mean, whatever, because when people, whatever brings them to whatever level of success they have is not going to take them to the next level. But once you have achieved a certain level of success, you become more risk adverse because you don't want to lose what you've already won. And so finally, uh, just to say about Ralph Lauren, you know, apparently from day one, he was always super enthusiastic and you know, I used to think that you, enthusiasm was something that came to you when you had a good reason to be enthusiastic. But I have learned that you can manufacture enthusiasm and you can like develop triggers for your own enthusiasm. And in my case, if I'm going to teach a workshop, you know, I can be worried about something or thinking about, you know, a problem with one of my kids. But when I show up at a training room, my enthusiasm goes overdrive because I have a room of people that I've got to manage their energy. Of course, if you're not training a room of 35, 40 plus people, uh, maybe, that's, maybe that's not appropriate. But you, like if you're leading a meeting, you most of the time you want to be enthusiastic You want to be enthusiastic about the changes that you're implementing, about the people that you're hiring, about your accounts. You want to see what you can do to keep your enthusiasm high. Think of it as an asset, not as something that randomly comes and visits and leaves. And and I don't think you can be enthusiastic all the time. I think of it almost like managing your energy. It's managing your enthusiasm. And just it's so valuable. In fact, Colin Powell, when he was a general, said that enthusiasm is a force multiplier. In fact, enthusiasm inspires confidence because people assume if you're enthusiastic that you have a reason to be so. so. So think about that. 
So I recommend that you, if you're a Ralph Lauren fan, if you like to read uh, stories of successful companies, that you pick up a copy of Ralph Lauren in his own fashion by Alan Flusser. I'll put the the title in, in the show notes. It's a it's a fun read. It's not it's a, it's a nice to read something that's not exactly communication oriented, but of course I'm taking all these communication and emotional intelligence takeaways from this book and from the story and from my own experience Ralph, with Ralph Lauren. So emotional intelligence is a an area of leverage for you as a leader, as a professional, maybe a business owner, senior leader. Really honing in on that skill is something you might want to think about for adding to your talent stack for 2020. If you'd like to get coaching on that or bring me in to do a workshop. We can do emotional intelligence along with leader communication or executive presence. presence. Uh, Just let me know. The website is mixonian.com. That's spelled M as in Mary, I-X-O-N-I-A-N. So have a great day and I'll catch you on the next episode. Bye-bye.